We are going to wrap up a series uh, called Reclaiming Scripture. We, we've been dealing with Scripture that people throw around, and, and, and a lot of it is well-intended, but it's just off, or sometimes it's just incorrect. Um, today, we're going to address this phrase that we hear often. I've heard it shared with me a couple of times. Um, God won't give you more than you can't handle. God won't give you more than you can handle. And so it's an interesting phrase. It's meant to encourage. But I wanted to start by 1 Corinthians 10, 13, because this is where that verse starts. And he writes, Paul writes, No temptation has overtaken you that is not coming to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And so from this passage, people have interpreted or paraphrased it as, oh, God won't give me more than I can handle. And so what that means is when life gets hard and you're starting to feel the tension and trials of life, uh, maybe you lost a job or your friends stabbed you in the back or, or some physical ailment hits, uh, Christians try to comfort one another with this, God won't give you more than you can handle, meaning you can do it. And so what's interesting here is the word in verse 13, to tempt, is perazo, and it can mean trials, your hardships of your life. But it's also temptations to sin. And in the New Testament, trials is only used four times, and temptations is used 29 times. So we want to understand, is Paul talking about trials? God won't give you more than you can handle, the trials of life? Or is he talking about temptations of sinning? So let's look at the context. And if you have your Bible, or you could grab a pew Bible, I always like to encourage you, follow along in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul starts with this. You know who you remind me of, Corinthians? You remind me of the Israelites. Remember the Israelites? So he says, verse 1 through 4, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. What he's saying is, remember our fathers. They were freed by God's deliverance. They crossed the Red Sea. They ate manna and they got water when they were thirsty to drink from the rock. They experienced all of this, and as we are baptized into Jesus Christ, they were foreshadowing a baptism into Christ by following Moses through the sea. Verse 4, they drank from the same spiritual rock that followed them. That rock is Jesus Christ. So the same Jesus we have today was there with Israel when they were crossing the sea. Jesus was there. That's so cool. Isn't that a cool imagery? Jesus didn't come out of the blue in the New Testament. He was the preeminent God, the triune God, and he was there with Moses. That's a cool thought. Verse 5. Can you say this word with me? Nevertheless. All right, turning here. Just like Israel, we all experience God's power. Nevertheless, what is he saying? With most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. He doesn't say all of them. He says most of them. They didn't reach the promised land. 
Some of them were destroyed. Israel turned to idolatry after being saved by a great God, saying, God, you're the best. You saved us. And they, some of them said, can we go back to Egypt? Why are we even here? And then some of them took the golden calf that Aaron made, and they worshiped and danced and ate around it. And that's what verse 7 was referring to. You worship idols. Some of them would go to foreign nations, and when God says stay pure, they would fornicate and, and pick up women and and go into sexual immorality, and therefore God punished them. So Corinthian Christians like Israel, you can experience, taste God's miracles. And as commentator Richard Hayes says, says, do not suppose that you are exempt, though, from God's judgment. So this judgment is not you will lose your salvation. This judgment is you can taste God's miracles, but if you continue to sin, there are repercussions, and there will be judgment. And this is what Paul is writing to the Corinthian church. So don't forget that God is a jealous God. Verse 22 in 1 Corinthians later on, he says, Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Do not suppose you are exempt from harm. And the big theme here is in verse 12. This is the theme that captures all together. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. In other words, when you feel self-assured of your confidence, of your faith, of yourself, of your theology, and you don't even need God, you could do life on your own, Paul is saying, take heed, especially you, Christian. I love what Elvin just shared about Charles. If there's anything you take away from today, you are never done learning, especially as Christians. We never say, I've done it, I know how it works. They're wrong and I'm right. We always have a posture of, Lord, teach me new things. I am not you. Help me to understand. And so we're verse 12. The downfall is, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Corinthians were saying, well, we saw Jesus. We were baptized. We're good. We've been baptized in the church. We're good. We could do whatever we want and we're exempt from sin. After all, grace. That is not Christian uh, value of grace. That is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer later on in 20th century calls cheap grace. So verse 6 and 10, it's easy to interpret, and I have these verses here. He goes on, and verse 6 through 10, can you spot a pattern here? If not, let's turn to the next slide, and it'll pop out. Now these took place for examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Can you pick up the pattern that Paul is trying to say? What is he trying to say? Learn from the past so you could move on into the future. You can't move forward without learning from the past. And some people say, let's just move forward, just keep moving forward. That's foolishness. You move forward by gleaning wisdom, processing, repenting from the past so you don't repeat the history. And this is what Paul is saying. 
Did you not recall the famous story? So just move forward is not the point here. He's saying learn from the past. Look what they did. Look what happened to them. And then in humility move forward because they fell into sin. Three sins that Paul is pointing out here, and I'll just, this is not the main part. You could do a whole sermon series on this. But the first sin is idolatry. Um, do not be idolaters as some of them were. The Corinthians, they were going to temples with other demon gods that they were worshiping. They were saying, I'm just going to hang out with my buddy Joe. Joe goes to that temple and worships. There's no harm in eating that food. And they started, started slowly backsliding and eating the food. Well, I don't worship that God. I just hang out here. And Paul is saying, watch out. In the previous chapter, he talked about this. Later on, he says, everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. So just because you could do it, doesn't mean it's helpful. And they started drifting away from God into idolatry. And idolatry is not dancing around the golden calf. And this is something we want to talk about in life group. Idolatry is anything we let our hearts absorb and live for and we're consumed by. Idolatry is anything that captures our, our purpose of life and exists for living that is not God. And so some parents these days, they make their children idols. Everything is about their children. Even God never wants parents to do that. Sometimes we think it's, it's success and career money, getting into Harvard or, or whatever it is. These things can become idols. And idolatry is believing I can succeed in life apart from God. And why God hates idolatry is not because he's just jealous. It hurts us. It moves us away from the God who loves us. Second, sexual immorality, verse 8. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. Paul probably is recounting Numbers 25, where it says 24,000, but he's just being verbatim, thinking verbatim. And so I was asking this question. Young men, women, adults, why does God hate sexual immorality so much? It's just sex. I mean, it's just, I'm not killing anybody. This is the mentality of today. It's just a rated R movie. It, it, they hooked up, so what? The issue is this. If you go study 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the problem with this is that sex is not just physical. It's not just even emotional. But sex is also very deeply spiritual. And so when we join with prostitutes or other people or people who are not our wives or husbands, God is saying, your spirit is also turning away from me and my purposes. And so 1 Corinthians 6.18, Paul writes, every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And the concern that Paul writes is your body is a temple of God. The Holy Spirit dwells in you, Christian. Don't forget that. And when you join together to someone who is not your husband and wife, it is not a physical problem. There is a spiritual problem. And so sexual sin, um, just we're all aware of this, but let me just tell you from my own personal history, from church history, whenever there's like a conflict in church, it, it's bad and blows up and then it goes away and then they move on. When there's like even money problems, it blows up and then people fight and then it moves on. But there's something about sexual sins in the church that linger. 
and it sticks. And there is a, something that's related to these kind of sins that hurts the whole body and it grieves the community. And so Paul is saying, this is a temptation you're facing. Watch out. Third, probably the simplest is grumbling and testing Jesus. Uh, they weren't testing Jesus by giving him a quiz. They were testing Jesus by, uh, you know how little children do this? Uh, I might have shared this before. Little children turn three or four. Now don't touch that. And they're like, no, don't touch that. I didn't touch it. I didn't touch it. You know, so what do they do? They're testing the limits of how far their parents are really holding to the rule. And the Corinthian church, they were pushing and pushing and pushing. And Paul is saying, don't test Jesus Christ's patience by continuing to sin as if it's all right. So this is the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So is this referring to trials of life that you endure? Or is this context talking about temptations Christians face? And the answer is, I, you want me to repeat the past 10 minutes? <laughs> temptations of sinning. And so when we use the term, God won't give you more than you can handle, and use it in the context of trials of life, we're not even using the Bible correctly. It's talking about the temptations that Corinthians are facing. When you're about to sin, watch out. Don't stand firm in your own comfort. So he goes on, verse 13, and gives us his assurance. But here's the good news. No temptation has taken, overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Tempted. But, you, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. This is what Paul is saying. This is so cool. The temptation you may face, you're not alone. People have been there, they've done it, and they have overcome. Also, he's saying you can run from your sin. There is no temptation. If you're a Christian, no temptation that could grab a hold of you and enslave you. You have the ability to get out. Why? Because God is faithful. Not you can do it. So if this sermon was wake up, get your discipline in order, and watch your hands and thoughts, that's not great news. The great news is this. God is faithful. He's going to provide your way out. What's our job then? Go back to verse 12. I don't rely on my self-sufficiency. I rely on Christ's sufficiency. Amen? I'm going to say that one more time. So in temptation, I don't rely on my self-sufficiency. I got this. So here are the dangerous phrases that people will say. Oh, that'll never happen to me. Famous last words. Oh, she deserved that. Famous last words. Or this is my life. I get to live it the way I want. Famous last words when it comes to temptations. But the words of the humble Christian is, God, you are faithful. God, provide a way out. I want to honor you. Run from it. Run. Verse 14, he goes on. He says, flee from this idolatry. So flee is this, folks. It's not, oh, that's terrible. I shouldn't touch it. What's flee? Flee is you look at it and you're running. You're not going anywhere near it. And so this is the context. And so we could talk about this a few more minutes, but I'm not going to belabor too much. And 
We are tempted by sin and idolatry today, but it's different from the Corinthians. We may not worship golden statues and wooden statues, but what is the idolatry that is consuming your heart? And this is what we want to talk about in life group and with one another or after lunch, worship today during lunch. Is your heart truly whole? Um, I love this verse in Psalm 86, verse 11. I like the NIV translation. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. I love this. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. Can we just say that together? Just, I think it's so powerful already. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. This is how we combat idolatry, by making sure all of our heart is not shared by anything else other than Jesus Christ. So the prescription for temptations is, is repent, run to Christ, run away from it, and give your whole heart to God. And so, before I wrap up, I want to end with this addendum. I want to go back to that phrase, God won't give you more than you can handle. And here's, forgive my language, the stupidity of this. If I lose my family, no one through an accident or tragedy, and someone goes, I'm sorry you're going through this. God won't give you more than you can handle. I will punch you in the face because it feels like I've lost almost everything that I truly loved. And so to say God won't give you more than you can handle, here's three problems. One is, it's not what the Bible says, fool. <laughs> That's not what 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says. Here's the second problem. It's just downright dangerous, if not ignorant. It's dangerous because we don't know what other people feel in tragedy and hardship. You can't say, oh, you could get over this. God won't give you more than you can handle. It, it's just ludicrous. It's, it's not love. It's so, it's so simplistic and Christianese. That's the saying, you know, phrases. And it's dangerous because many did receive more than they could handle, and they died as martyrs. So this past week, on Tuesday, which was Suicide Prevention Day, a pastor in Riverside who was an associate pastor of a mega church, his ministry was to mental health, those in depression, because he struggled with depression all his life. He was 30 years old. His name is Jared Wilson. And on Tuesday, he took his own life. He's been battling it. The church knew it. The depression had a hold of him. And he did everything he can. He sought the Lord, sought help, sought doctors. And he preached at a woman's funeral who committed suicide even to the very last days. And this is what it says in one article. Wilson, known as a passionate preacher, most recently was an associate pastor at Mega Church, Harvest Christian Fellowship in Riverside, California, a co-founder of the mental health nonprofit Anthem of Hope. Wilson was open about his own depression, often posting on his social media accounts about his battles with the mental illness. And so here's what we learn about people with real depression and mental health issues. I learned this this week. 
almost all of them who attempt suicide or try to or commit suicide, this startled me. Not one of them wanted to die. They just wanted the pain to go away. That's the illness. It's not I want to die. I want the pain to stop. And so when we see this, there's a perspective and a nuance that the church has to use, but it can't be, oh, God will get you through it, just simplistic. It can't be God won't give you more than you can handle. On the day he died, he wrote this in his own Instagram, and this is a poem. Loving Jesus doesn't always cure suicidal thoughts. Loving Jesus doesn't always cure depression. Loving Jesus doesn't always cure PTSD. Loving Jesus doesn't always cure anxiety. But that doesn't mean Jesus doesn't offer us companionship and comfort. He always does that. And so if we're marrying this together, this is what we're trying to say as Christians. The comforter in Christ is our salvation and our hope. But God has also given us a community in addition to that to walk alongside, to lift the pain, and to carry one another's burdens, to walk with their understanding, to know their thoughts, not to fix them, but to be with them. And so when we say God won't give you more than you can handle, it says, it communicates this, you got this, I'm out. And also, God's giving it to you, he's out. Here's what we can't say. What are better things to say? Church, we could say, I'm going to be here for you as much as you need. So this is why we don't focus on our needs. We look at the needs of the community. We could say, I want to fight and wrestle with you in prayer, seeking the Lord and getting help so that we could fight this together. Don't do it alone. Here's a few other thoughts. I don't know how much it hurts, but Jesus does. And Jesus offers companionship and comfort. We will seek this together. And so these are the words that we need to share and carry in each other. This is why I need you and the church. Because individual Christianity, listening to a podcast, having worship in my car is good. But I need someone who I can say, I am battling. And I feel like I'm drowning. Can you pray with me and walk with me? There is always hope in the Lord because David struggled with this. In Psalm 40, he ends with this. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry block and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. Jesus is the foundation. The church is the family. And so to encourage one another is to walk together, carry each other's burdens, and to bring Christ in a real way to people who feel like there is no hope. This is your call, church. Amen? Amen. This is your call to be salt and light. Not to condemn, not to judge, not to say, I'm good. Jesus Christ baptized me and I'm good. But to engage but to go out of your comfort zone and to be the hands and feet of Christ, to embrace those who are struggling with pain. We may never fathom, but in Christ's hope and love, we could grab their hand and wrestle with them.
Jesus Christ is the hope. Let's pray. Lord, in this room, we come before you, and you know each of our thoughts, our burdens, our, our struggles. May you truly be the hope, and in you, may there be a salvation for sin, from sin and death and, and baggages and struggles. But may, may you also raise up the church to live as the church, that it's not a building or it's not an organization or a denomination, but it's the people redeemed and sanctified and claimed to life through the cross of Jesus Christ, that we may live together, engage in the messiness of life, and to empathize and just walk and be still before next to our brothers and sisters. God, help us to keep our minds off of ourselves that we may look to the needs around us. Lead us, Lord God, to the people that we can minister. And humbly, as you've given us love, may we love. As you've given us hope, may we direct them to the hope in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.